77 years ago, the Brits and the Americans were coming. We are running up to the liberation of Eindhoven, which uh, then happened on September the 18th. And exactly for that reason, we have our guest, Henk Kuyten. Welcome. Yes. Hello, Jean-Paul. You um, were not present during the liberation of Eindhoven, the end of the Second World War. But you hear many stories from your father because he has been very active in that period. And I guess we will hear later on exactly what, what he did or how he experienced it. But I guess for you, the liberation must always have brought back many memories of how your father told the story. You, you may That's not have great. been the, the, the typical person to just watch the parade. No, 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 no. And um, um, I remember his stories and occasionally we have a, um, there's a sort of military parade in the Netherlands, in the city, especially at Lib on Liberation Day. And then you sort of try and go back to his thoughts and things he told me about the war. And let's not forget, we're talking about 1940 when Eindhoven was occupied and he was 17 at that time. So, um, Yeah, we, we have quite some detail uh, how he experienced it as a young man. Mm -hmm. and, and he must have been quite active because or, or had a strong opinion on what was happening at that moment. And he also translated that in, in becoming very active. Yes, he, um, I mean, he was a young man. He was studying bookkeeping, accountancy. That, that was his thing. And, you know, Eindhoven being occupied at that moment for several years... Uh, it, it, it does give you the, the idea, you know, is this, how long is this going to take? Uh, the people were, were frightened, they were fed up. And uh, at a certain moment, he, uh, when Eindhoven was liberated, he did decide to join the British army mm -hmm. and to, uh, to proceed on from there. So that was quite a change in his life. Yeah, we will hear the stories later on on what that meant during the operations uh around September the, the 18th. But I guess also the, the experience of being at war and possibly also already the period before the war started, before Germany attacked the Netherlands in 1940, I bet many people saw it coming. No, um, well, at least he didn't. And I think most of Europe didn't because mm -hmm. um, it, it just seems like um, Hitler sort of tricked everybody but already had his plans made. And after the invasion of Poland, it was, uh, it was sort of the, the beginning of all the troubles. Mm -hmm. So to, to, to many people, it came as a surprise, even it's well yes. known that uh, one of the ministers said uh, almost the day before the invasion in uh, May 1940, there's nothing yeah. uh, gonna, gonna happen. And then in the end, suddenly there was this surprise attack. Yeah, so, um, well, then suddenly, you know, Holland is, the Netherlands is a small country with, 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 it's not a strong military power. So the Germans, I think within a couple of days, they already occupied the country and everybody was sort of flabbergasted. But then again, you know, um, uh, I think the experts knew that they were sort of gearing up for, for war or something else. Um, in a way, uh, it was understandable because they, they came out of the First World War with a lot of, um, there was a lot of frustration from the Germans at their side. And it was just a matter of time, you know, before somebody stood up, 
yeah, with this totalitarian regime and made things worse for the rest of the world. Yeah, it was indeed amazing. It, it was also a kind of funnel how the German propaganda uh, took more and more people into their direction. I remember that uh, there was a, a very insightful exhibition in Den Bosch in the Nordbrabant's museum about the design of the, the, the Nazi period. And it was indeed amazing how well orchestrated that was and how masses of people were just following it. And, and, and at a certain point, there was almost no... No return for the total population to. Uh, uh, That's correct. It was um, the the actual the, the leadership of the the Nazi party and, and and everything everybody around Hitler the in crowd. I mean, these were all experts, and these people they knew how to orchestrate this um, manipulation on all levels, um, and they were actually quite clever in what they did. So, um, although it's all despicable what happened, it's still, the organization was, was, was absolutely fantastic. Mm -hmm. Then still, I can imagine that as a 17-year-old boy, it may still come a bit as a surprise if suddenly your country is also attacked. On the other hand, you see what is going to happen. But then in the end, uh, really taking the decisions in part of your life to be active in resistance or to join the British Army as liberator must be a major step. And, and that, that is not something that... I think you may know up front, or may some some things that happened by accident uh, the, on, on on how just the history flows. Did, did you have an impression about uh, from your father whether he already knew that he was gonna fight or that he was uh, gonna become very active? Um, well, not at the beginning, but I, I remember he told me that um, he was sort of studying bookkeeping, and in those days he helped certain shopkeepers to uh, falsify their their bookkeeping um, to stash money away and escape. So he was already 17, 18, and uh, at that moment he was. He, I, I guess he he already has had these thoughts about uh, being occupied and what can we do to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. That's also a story that I hear a lot from the history, how Phillips had to act, had to maneuver during the Second World War. Uh, just having blunt opposition against everything may not be the smartest way and may not also the, the way to achieve a lot. But that yep. way of starting to, to, to arrange things must have also been something that he uh, uh, experienced in these days. Yeah. But then... Yep. yeah. So, well, his, his father, so my grandfather, he worked at Phillips as a librarian. He was uh, head of the uh, uh, technical library. So my father got, he got all the stories from what was happening at Phillips at the time. <clears throat> and so he, yeah, he sort of got a picture of, you know, what, what's happening here. Things are changing and it's, it's not for the better. Yeah. Can you sketch that, that period better? I'm not sure to what extent uh, you heard these stories, but there must have been a lot of tension inside management layers of the Philips organization when suddenly the, uh, the country is, is occupied. And of course, we know all the stories of uh, even a complete radio station being built secretly at a nut lab, which then became Radio Herreis in Nederland just after the World War. So definitely mm. under the radar screen, a lot of things happened. But you also have a major risk then. Yeah, well, a lot of people that worked at Philips stayed there and worked there. Um, <clears throat> I know that several Jewish uh, people were deported 
they went to the camp in Vught. Um, but then, don't forget my my grandfather. I remember he telling my dad because I listened to those stories as well. I mean, he said we had no choice. We either, uh, if we lost our job or we got kicked out or whatever, we would probably be sent to Germany to work. So we stayed at, uh, doing what we did best. And <clears throat> suddenly there's a sort of new leadership, which is German leadership. You just had to do what you had to do. There was not really a choice because, yeah, you're occupied, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And then there is this moment that may have changed the history completely for him. Because in the end, he ended up in uh, in jail in Scheveningen, a quite notorious yeah. place to be during Second World War. Yeah, as a young man, I think he was 18 at the time, uh, 18 and a half. Um, he got into a fight with a German officer. And well, you know, these things happen. But in, in those days, th- these were dangerous things. You, you could get shot or... or, or well, in his case, maybe because he was only 18, he was sent to Scheveningen, which is uh, yeah, near The Hague, and he was sent to prison. So uh, he stayed there for about six months between probably people, boys just like him and other criminals. Um, and after six months, he was uh, sent to Germany to, uh, to yeah. work. Yeah. Now you just tell tell me in a very neutral way the facts, but in the family that must have had a major impact. Yes, because there was hardly any communication. He was suddenly he he was taken in by the uh, by the forces and he disappeared. Uh, I do understand that he was allowed to write letters home, so everybody knew. Okay, he's safe. At least he's alive, mm-hmm. and he's in uh, he's in prison and. Um, that's about all they heard. And I think they only heard, they got letters from him, I think only once a month. So uh, that was the only way to keep in touch. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a, it was a scary situation because at home, my father also had two younger brothers and a younger sister. And, well, they were all worried at, at the time, of course. Yeah. And then he did not stay in Scheveningen because in the end he was moved to Germany. That's correct. At a certain moment, um, the Germans uh, sent him to Germany. Um, and he ended up in Leverkusen, which is near Cologne. And he was, uh, because he had some knowledge of bookkeeping and accountancy, uh, he was sent to work at Bayer. And Bayer was, I think it was called IG Farbe at the time. It was a, a company with a different name. So he worked at a German company at a finance department. So that that was that was better than hard labor. But then again, he was young, and he was uh, he was quite intelligent. So they let him do this work, and he actually stayed there for about six months, and then made the brave decision to escape suddenly. And then he is on his own, just in Germany. Yep. He had to find his way in Germany. But if you're on your own in Germany, um, sometimes it's even safer than being on your own in an occupied country. Because, um, I mean, well, he looked like everybody else of his age, except the strange thing was, and that's what he told me, all Germans from the age of 18, 19, they were in the army. So who was this young man who was not working, was not in the army? And basically he went back to the Netherlands on foot 
which is about 100 kilometers, 120 kilometers. Um, yeah, uh, eating food on the way. And, and, and he, his advantage was that he spoke German quite well. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sort of made his way gradually to the border. And yeah, it's, it's, I always imagine, you know, the, the things, um, the quiet life we've had because um, you're looking at somebody who's between 17 and 20 and everything that he has experienced, you know, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And then he must find his way in Germany. That was a country where you are not sure whether anyone whom you meet in the street was just a follower of the regime or whether you could trust it to some extent someone and, and then get something to eat. So he must have made many, many difficult choices, uh, even though this 100 kilometers may just be a week or so yeah. on foot? Probably, um, yeah. I, I remember that he told me that he traveled a lot through farm fields mm-hmm. to keep away from towns and cities because then you would uh, stand out. People would want to know who you are. and uh, So the, the, that's actually the way he managed to get to the border. But then again, once you reach the Dutch border, You're in the Netherlands, but you're still in occupied terrain. Mm-hmm. So it, it didn't make things any easier. Yeah. Did, did, did he share with you some of the feelings, some of the thoughts? It, it must be really shaping your personality, being in such a situation that you decided to ex- uh, escape. You have to stay alive, make this travel. And, yeah. and, in the, and at the same time, you spent hours and hours and hours on just walking. So yeah. you have many, a lot of time to think about Yeah, well, he told me, yeah, he told me he had no plans to escape. Uh, well, he had a plan to escape, but he didn't really plan how to do it. He just didn't show up for work, and uh, he actually left in the evening. Mm-hmm. That's what he told me when it was dark. So uh, it would take at least eight, nine hours, ten hours before they found out he was missing. And by that time, he already made some progress. Um, But, well, he said he wanted to go home because he was, uh, he was homesick uh, and he was afraid mm-hmm. because he lived somewhere where no, he didn't know anybody. He, was, he had the impression he was helping the regime because he was working there. So, he, um, you know, and these are, these are thoughts of someone who was only 18, yeah. 18, maybe 19. So that's, uh, yeah, it, 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 it seems very grown up. Yeah. Did he ever write memoirs? Did he publish a book? Did he only share it with you? No, I just have letters. I have agendas. Mm-hmm. He has his uh, his diaries from uh, 1940 to 45. They were small booklets, which he kept in his pocket. And uh, those are quite interesting because uh, sometimes there are passages where he just says what he was doing. And... I always wondered how, how did he, uh, it was dangerous to carry an agenda with him because they would, yeah, if he would be searched as a young man on the run, they would find out that he was, uh, yeah, who he yeah. was. Yeah, But still, apparently, it helps to take notes, to have this small booklet yeah. that you trust, where you share all your memories, possibly with the idea that if he doesn't survive, someone else would, would, would read them. Um, yeah. Were you reading them as a factual story? 
Or is it, is it, is it, uh, or, because you just mentioned he, he was describing what he was doing, but maybe also his thought developed or that he felt uncomfortable uh, about what he had been done? Uh, no, well, um, I, I remember that he said he didn't write any letters home from Germany because um, just imagine that they might be looking for him. They would probably first look uh, check at his family in the Netherlands if mm -hmm. there was any sign of him. So he didn't send any letters when he was actually walking uh, walking back to the Netherlands uh, because he, you know, he thought if, 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 I mean, he didn't have any stamps, he had nothing, you know, um, he didn't have much paper with him. So, um, yeah, all he had is his, it was his agenda and um, he didn't actually write much in his agenda while he was on the run. Must have been a very brave story to do this, but at the same time, the family was experienced uh, also the, uh, the Second World War, as it was felt yeah. in, in, in the Netherlands. Yeah. And I guess there are also stories from, uh, from them. Yeah, well, my, my grandparents, they, uh, his parents, they lived actually quite near to the railway station in Eindhoven, which was pretty central. Um, You know, uh, life just, everyday life just, just went on. But there was always this thing of um, being unsure what the next day would bring. And um, there were uh, people who listened to the radio, listened to the BBC, see what was happening. Uh, that was forbidden. Um, most people didn't even have a radio in those days. Mm -hmm. So th they were quite unsure of what, what was going on. But, you know... Um, Most of his, uh, I mean, his younger brothers and, brothers and sister, they just went to school and they did their normal thing. So um, for them, it wasn't really, they didn't experience it like he did because he was the oldest. And then, but we will hear that later on, your father joined the army during the liberation time. Design, lifestyle, technology and innovation. More on podcasts for Brainport. Radio for Brainport, 747 AM, DAB Plus. And we are looking forward to the liberation of Eindhoven. We do that in 2021 because we celebrate the liberation of Eindhoven on September the 18th. And we did so in 1944. But in the years before, many things happened. So in the period after that, for that reason, our guest is Henk Kuyten. We are looking back to the history of the Second World War, where your father um, was sent to work in Germany, escaped there and returned to the Netherlands. A long way home. It must have taken quite a while. And uh, he, he, he took notes of, of, of that. And of course, now you were reading these through a very different pair of glasses, I would say. Yeah, yeah. You're just, you're just reading, and, and I mean, we had a pretty protective upbringing. Uh, don't forget, if you live in Western Europe, uh, let's say more, well, at least after the Cold War, things things got pretty quiet, and we were uh, sort of protected well. And then you you read these stories through the eyes of someone of the, who has the same age, but is actually in wartime. So mm -hmm. You get it's, it's totally different. Um, You know, uh, having to deal with all these things at such a young age, it makes you very grown up. You grow up very fast. Yeah. 
you have to deal with these things. You have to you, you see how a lot of things are are wrong, but there is no way of escaping from the the massive uh, pressure that 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 was present during Second World War yep. in the Netherlands and also in Germany. Yeah, it's true. Uh, actually, my, my mother-in-law is German, and she told me that in, you know, in those days in Germany, um, I think she was about 20 then, she said, you know, we we were on the run as well. We were afraid. They knocked on your door, the Nazis, why you were not a member of the party, why you were not in the army. So there were um, a lot of people who, 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 even the people who disliked Hitler and didn't agree with his thoughts, they were afraid, and they just had to go with the flow. Otherwise, you get picked up. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, it was for them in those days. Uh, it, it was, for a lot of Germans, it was also a difficult time. Yeah, uh, your father had worked in Germany, then tried to get back to the Netherlands. He escaped basically from his work address in Germany. A long walk on foot, and then at some point in time, he came into the Netherlands, was trying to find Eindhoven. Yeah, he, uh, he actually he made it back to Eindhoven and he stayed, but he couldn't go home. He couldn't, because if they were actually looking for him, that's the place they would come and look. So he stayed at a butcher's store and um, that was in the center of the city. It was someone he knew. Mm -hmm. The butcher was called Arts. It was a... Uh, 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 I can't remember the address, but it was somewhere in the city center. And he actually stayed there in the attic for about six months to a year. So uh, occasionally he slipped out of the house and went to visit his parents and then left again. So they knew he was safe. They knew he was in the area, but he hardly came on, onto the street. He hardly came outside. And well, actually, he learned everything about meat. You know, it's a butcher's store. Yeah. <laughs> but your grandparents must have had many stories about the fear, or whether their house was searched, whether he was present there. I guess the well, Germans were searching for him. Yeah. Well, um, uh, my father said that he he, he never heard of uh, Germans knocking on the door and try and asking where he was, and uh, so. He had the impression that they were not looking for him. Um, yeah. So in that sense, uh, there there is no really, I don't have any information about that. At least mm -hmm. my father didn't tell me. Yeah. Was that also a moment that he started to prepare for when the city were to be liberated, he would join the forces? Was that a moment, a period that he uh, became more radical in, I personally need to do something? Yeah, he was, he was, he was uh, quite an active person. He was young, he was intelligent. He wasn't really afraid, or not always, uh, but that's probably the age thing. He was about 18, 19 at the time. Uh, but um, he did tell me that, you know, if he said, if uh, through my mind uh, it went that if we would be liberated, I would want to go to Germany. I want to do something back for the Liberation Army. Uh, because, you know, later on when D Day started in June, people knew that things were changing, things were going to happen. And that, that's basically the moment after June the 6th, 1944, 
um, that that was basically the moment when his mind changed and he said, right, now, now when I need to do something if we get liberated. And it, yeah, it actually happened, uh, what is it, 90 days later. Mm -hmm. So there was this period, September the 18th was approaching, just like now we are recording this on uh, the 14th of September, just yep. four or five days to go. That must have been a very exciting, but also a very anxious, a very uh, a moment really to be nervous about what is going to happen, because it was not without a fight. No, it was still a dangerous time because the Germans, they knew they, they had to withdraw. Um, they were not going to win this because um, Eindhoven was kind of a linking pin. The, uh, the Americans landed under the first airborne. They landed in north of Eindhoven and the British came from the south. So Eindhoven was kind of a meeting point. Mm -hmm. And you, my dad said, you felt things were happening Um There were uh, uh, RAF planes flying in the air. Uh, in the middle of the night, they were on their way, probably to Cologne, to do some bombing. And you heard the sound of the, I don't know which planes, I think the Flying Fortress, I'm not sure. Uh, hundreds of them, middle of the night, things were happening. And it was a really strange, uh, uh, strange time. But he said he remembered that um, the planes uh, flew over and then came back about half an hour later. Then he knew, you know, he knew they were on a mission. Yeah. And, uh, a mission uh, nearby, the, uh, a mission yeah. 15 minutes away from Eindhoven. Yeah, that's, that's yeah, it's, it's. Um, I mean, uh, Cologne is about 100 kilometers and that was completely bombed. So, uh, but more German cities. And he, you, you started to get the impression that things were starting to change. And that that's when everybody got nervous, motivated to do something. The Germans were at that time starting to withdraw, but that was also a dangerous period because they were frustrated and they would possibly shoot at anything that, that would be in their way. Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a time when things were happening. Yeah, I listened to recordings from Radio Herreisens Nederland, the radio station that started to broadcast from Eindhoven from October 1944. And in many of these programs, you hear warnings to the, the part of the Netherlands that was not yet liberated, not to start resistance before the troops came, exactly because of the high risks. You may already have this feeling of victory is coming soon, but of course you have uh, uh, the Germans who are still uh, frustrated and, and possibly also anxious and then didn't like any, take any risks on a population that would uh, start to take uh, action. That would be that would be the best thing to do. Just yeah. um, uh, keep quiet, uh, uh, yeah, sort of lay low and, and let things happen because uh, it was a time when the Germans were also afraid. They they weren't quite sure what to do. Uh, they had their orders to withdraw, and uh, but but they were not happy and uh, they had to leave everything behind. So, uh, but I uh, guess it is a difficult period for a young man who feels like he must take action. Yeah. The the uh, the best way would be not to do anything because of all the risks, but that may be very much against the feelings mm -hmm. that you have about you personally uh, need to become involved. Do you have any recollections or stories from, from that period? Well, he said once to me that, um, you know, he said when the Germans started to withdraw, that was the moment to get back at them. 
And then he said to me, uh, my father, so my grandfather said to him, you know, no, this is not, this is not the way to do things. Um, the Germans are frustrated. It's a dangerous time. Don't go out on the street. Um, so we're, we're talking about the days just before 18th, 18th of September. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a very uh, risky period to be on the streets. And my grandfather said to him, if you want to mean something, if you want to do something in this world, then uh, wait until the liberation comes and then see what you can do. Yeah, yeah. And then liberation came indeed. And uh, then he told the first British soldier that he saw, yes, I want to join you or, or <laughs> how did yes, that go? Was, well, there was a, there was a sort of a, an office where you could enlist in the army, uh, but not many people did that in the Netherlands. Everybody was happy they were liberated and people wanted to go on with their own life, uh, visit friends, family they hadn't seen for a while. And, yeah. uh, but then again, he, um, no, he enlisted in the British Army and they put him in a special unit, which was actually a Scottish regiment, the Highland Division. And he was used as an interpreter. So they made him an officer. And his key task was to interpret German officers because he spoke German. And so they, um, yeah. And you just, that was basically his task. You you mentioned not many people did that. Did that feel as the Dutch were cowards not to, uh, when they had an opportunity to join, they let others do it? Or uh, I think they were, they were fed up. Mm -hmm. I think they were, it was, it was, they were glad that they were liberated and it was time to get on with their lives. They had a lot of things to arrange anyhow after yeah, four years of war to rebuild the city. That's correct. A, a new beginning, you know. Uh, and don't forget, in on the 19th of September, um, Eindhoven was bombed by uh, the Luftwaffe, the German uh, Air Force, um, because they tried to block the uh, important roads and networks of the British and the Americans. They tried to frustrate the liberation. Mm -hmm. And I think that cost another 200 lives within the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty um, well known that that bombardment indeed was about 200 people uh, who were killed there. Also, a lot of soldiers and a lot of supply lines with ammunition, with fuel, were hit because they were entering the city and, and basically had very little opportunity for, for any uh, shelter. Um, yeah. Then after, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. Well, around that period, after the bombing, this when he enlisted, and they, um, well, they, they, they said, well, this is what we want you to do. We can really use you because you speak German. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, he put on his uniform. He had, a, I think, a military training that took like three days or a week, and um, it was off to war. Yeah. So, uh, what he actually did was joined the. Um, Operation Market Garden, but he didn't actually go to Arnhem all the way. I mean, he was not in the front. He was already a couple of days behind because he enlisted after uh, after the troops moved on. And, uh, well, Operation Market Garden, at least the taking of the, the bridge, was not a success in Arnhem. So um, then they withdrew again. And I think within two months, he ended up in the Ardennes. The Battle of the Bulge, which was also very heavy fighting. Eh? Yes, well, that that was the first time he told me. That's the first time in life uh, I had the impression I became a man. He said we were afraid. Uh, it was cold. 
um, the Germans had a strong offensive. Uh, the Americans were in trouble, so they were helped by the Canadians and the British uh, to sort of counterattack the Germans. Um, and this Battle of the Bulge, I mean, it was winter. We're talking about, I think, half December to at least, I think, the 1st of February, which is the coldest period. Mm -hmm. um, he said, well, that, that, that was basically when... Uh, I mean, he had never fired a gun, and actually, he didn't. He didn't like uh, heroics. Even after the war, he never really spoke about if he ever shot anyone. Uh, it wasn't his thing. He said, it, uh, "I didn't really ask ask about it either, because I didn't have the impression he wanted to talk about it." Mm -hmm. But he said, um, "You know, at that time, there were uh, certain buddies of mine. They were shot, and that that he he said literally. He said that's when I peed in my pants." And I became a man, and something changed in my head. Yeah, uh, yeah it, was, it was really uh, quite fascinating. Yeah. So he, he, he still wanted to speak about that experience, how we personally yes. felt with it. Huh? Uh, yeah. I, I, I quite often hear that it's very hard for people to actually describe the, the actions of the battle, but indeed the, uh, the fear and, 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 and the personal way of... of being at war is what 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 many of them uh, f struggle with uh, want to talk about well he was don't forget he was i mean he was a young man and he, he had he had experienced certain things but yeah. this was really shooting at each other this was real war and uh, he had uh, he said to me mac that was his buddy one of the scottish guys i mean he was lying next to him and he got shot And he, that was such a shock for my dad that he sort of, his mindset turned around, you know. Uh, hey, these Germans are really bad guys. I have to protect myself. And he said that, that was really a, a sort of turning point, um, uh, which made him realize, you know, this is dangerous and we have to look out for each other and look out for ourselves. And uh, he became tougher from that moment onwards. Was he still an interpreter at that time? Uh, yes, because uh, when they, uh, whenever they uh, captured Germans, then uh, yeah, they would. He said he said that they brought them to a tent and uh, or wherever, and uh, that was when I had to uh, yeah ask them questions. Yeah, yeah, can imagine that that is also a difficult period, particularly if you start to feel how dangerous the Germans were, what they were doing to your comrades. But at the yeah. same time, yeah, you may not want to torture them to uh, to get the secrets out. Although knowing the the secrets of the attack plans of the Germans was very high, critical to save your own uh, team. Must have been. Yeah, well, yeah, well he didn't. He didn't really. Um, <clears throat> um, the questions were obviously. Uh, let's say that the British officers and the American officers, well, at least the British, because that was his battalion, uh, they feeded him with the questions. Um, he didn't really come up with the questions himself, so he translated it. And uh, yeah, he was pretty firm about this. And uh, he said, you know, yeah, he said, we, often we got the information we needed. So, yeah. yeah. But he didn't really tell me that much about uh, the method they used and i guess he also knew a lot of confidential information at least from the germans yeah after that yeah yeah well that that's everything that that would be passed on to the senior officers and then mm -hmm. they would uh, yeah, yeah. perform their strategy 
I remember him saying once that, um, you know, we were, in one sense, we were, we became men because it was really war and you had to stand up. But then again, we were really afraid. And he said the supply of ammunition was just about as much as the supply of whiskey. Don't forget, it was a Scottish battalion. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he said, we weren't drunk, but we needed a couple of drops just to take away the, the top of the fright. Yeah. Just, just, just to, to be just a little bit numb, which made you um, made, made it easy, easier yeah. to perform your task. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. It makes me think of the 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 uh, the Americans in Vietnam, you know, with drugs and things like that. It's, it's the same. Yeah. Well, it, it 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 of course changes the way that you feel and that that that, that you react. But sometimes mm-hmm. there's a thin line because just uh, having that gentle effect and a much more severe effect, and that that must have been played a role throughout the war, mm-hmm. throughout the, the, the period. Yeah. So. Diodan, he went back to a front more towards the south, and from there on? Uh... Yeah, from the Ardennes, they moved in January, I think it was January or February 45, they moved into Germany. And that was basically the beginning of the end. Um, uh, at a certain moment, they ended up in Hanover, in that area, which is sort of north, middle north Germany. It's quite a distance from, from the Belgium Ardennes. Uh, but yeah, it took him, I think that was until he was in the army until June 45. So um, actually they were, um, the Germans were withdrawing with an enormous pace. And I, I'm not quite sure of the timeline, but I think at that time the Russians were already coming in from the east and the British and Americans from the West, and the Canadians, of course. So there was, uh, it was really the beginning of the end. And uh, I remember him saying that, you know, we, when we went through these German villages, and sometimes we did house uh, searches, uh, they were fed up as well, the Germans. They were, um, I mean, they had been, uh, for years they had been, uh, under that Nazi regime, and they were also afraid, and they had huge casualties, just like the Allies. They they were fed up. They were actually glad it was all over. Yeah, they they were glad it was over. They were fed up with the regime, but they must have understood that the soldiers themselves may also just be a victim of the circumstances, and and just had to do that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I mean. Listen, the American and British soldiers, they, they didn't have much empathy for the Germans at the time because they were being shot at. So, uh, yeah. But then again, you know, if, if you try and try and think as uh, a little bit out of the box, then you, you sort of understand that the, the Germans have had their problems as well, the, mm-hmm. the, the normal people. Uh, they were sort of dragged into this, uh, into this, uh, uh, a big charade for all these years, and they were afraid. And, and, and yeah, did he feel? Don't that- forget that, that, that most of the villages where you went through. That's what my dad said. What he said: all those towns and villages we went through, there were hardly any young German people there. They were all in the army. Yeah. They were gone. Now I can imagine that 
accelerating, going to Berlin as fast as possible must also have had already given that feeling of we are the winners. We are mm. uh, that, that that kind of feeling of, of victory. Is that what what was uh, the prime thought in these weeks, or was it still? Uh, fear, fierce battles, uh, resistance every now and then, the risk of trapping into mines. Uh, um, they, they, they may not have been received as the liberators uh, like in Eindhoven if you enter no, Cologne. Or... No, but most people stayed inside, is what he said when we went into Germany. He said near the borders there were obviously uh, uh, minefields, um, uh, he said actually that when ride, driving uh, his, a motorcycle, uh, he almost rode on, drove on a mine. Uh, a mine actually went off, and he got thrown off his motorbike, not injured. But you know, he said when we actually left that area, the the, the border between Belgium and um, Germany, everything was more or less safe. I mean, there were hardly any soldiers. It was just sort of taking over the country. And they felt they felt confident, and they felt less afraid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he make it all the way to Berlin? No, they moved. Uh, his regiment moved, went north, so they went to uh, the northern part of Germany. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was uh, the area near uh, Hanover. That's where they were stationed. And at the end of the war, they had to stay there also for in that area for another month. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, when, when he did a house search, he, he, he looked around and he said, hey, it's an interesting book. And that was a book indeed uh, called Mein Kampf. And so he put it in his pocket and I still have it here at home. It's a 1941 version with a stamp in the front donated by the mayor of a town to a newlywed couple. And... Um, yeah, it was a present which you got from the, the government when you got married. Did he see that book as a trophy? Did it bring back memories? Or was he studying it? Because how could it have come that that a complete country moved into this direction? What what was his feeling when he saw the book at home later? It uh, was definitely a trophy. He said, well, you know, he knew everything about the book. And uh, he was surprised that it was there. But basically... Um, the version he had, there were already six million copies. So the whole country had this book in the house, in their house. And um, well, it, it was a, yeah, how should I say? No, I don't know. It was a trophy, I think. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. a trophy. And, um, but it was also because, I mean, he was interested in, in politics and economics. So uh, he also thought, you know, this is interesting to have. Yeah. Definitely of historical value. On the other hand, we see in uh, several countries that it has become a kind of forbidden book because it is mm. seen as a bit of a Bible of uh, neo-Nazis. Yeah. On the other hand, I can also imagine, and, and, and I still remember going to this exhibition in het Not Brabant's Museum in Sertogenbos, in Den Bosch, showing the design of the Nazis. And, and I was amazed on how... Um, in a smart way, it was designed, how it was really literally getting a kind of funnel to attract people in the mindset. You could see how the um, the promises were great, 
without exactly stating what what it meant. And so I can still imagine that just searching it, reading it from a historical perspective, how uh, influence, how fake news can influence people mm. is mm. is interesting. Uh, well, the, the, the way the war started was the propaganda machine running uh, over time and um, sort of selecting the right people to do the job. And uh, it was extremely well organized. Actually, my opinion, uh, because I'm interested in these things, um, I think the war just ended on time, just on time, because the Germans already had the V1 and the V2 rockets. Uh, They were busy with production of uranium. Uh, They had the first jet plane, the Messerschmitt. And, I mean, the British had the Spitfire, which was fantastic, but it was still a propeller aircraft. So the Germans were technologically, they were already advanced and moving on. I think the war ended just on time. Yeah. Is that a bit of an accident or were there also other mechanisms that it was not sustainable to occupy all of Europe with countries resisting? Um, Maybe that's a hard question to... Uh, that's a hard to, question to, for to, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it was amazing indeed how much technology was being developed. Uh, yeah, and and also how advanced the uh, the, the Germans were. Now um, you've been uh, explaining a lot about how your father experienced the Second World War. There have been many events to remember the Second World War. What what strikes you most in in this is that uh, seeing the cemeteries where stone after stone after stone you see the men who were shot trying to liberate us or is that the parades of the vehicles uh, and then thinking my dad was on such a vehicle as well or yeah well well in, indeed uh, the parades are um, in that sense they they do give me an impression of what the material was like what, what just try and sort of think of what it was like in those days um but uh, well, I remember we had uh, years ago we had um, a, a big NATO maneuver in Germany, and the operation was called Atlantic Lion. It was quite a while ago, and I remember in the Kennedy Land in Eindhoven, the tanks, American, British, they rolled over the Kennedy Land on their way to Germany. I mean, this is unheard of now, but I'm talking about something like 30 years ago and uh, maybe 35 years ago and that was fantastic and the people were actually waving on the troops and, uh, and they had these banners saying thank you for our freedom it still lives in the minds of people it brings back memories and um, i'm planning to visit the d-day area with my son so i want to go to normandy he's 21 22 and um, i just want to show him that uh, don't take peace for granted. Um, if you see all the lives lost, and it's an, uh, it's an enormous sacrifice for freedom. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important message, you know, just to think about what happened and just stand still with the people that suffered and died. Yeah, and with modern geopolitical situations, the role that the U.S. is playing internationally, it's May sometimes be hard for the younger generation to to see it this way. Yeah. Do you recognize that as well? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, America's always been sort of the the, the police force of the world, uh, promoting democracy. Um, they've been they've always been fighting somebody else's battle, um, in, in for the protection of democracy. And yeah, I don't know, you know, um, <clears throat> that that's a difficult question. Uh, I know that young people uh, these days they. No, I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to answer that question. Yeah. Well, it's a difficult one, uh, Jean-Paul. But maybe it's not the two of us who have to exactly answer that question. But it uh, is indeed, uh, I think, it's interesting to, thing. to, uh, to yeah. hear from you how difficult that is after this uh, period. Yeah. And yeah. Guyton, thank you very much for sharing the experiences and all the stories that you heard from your father for the liberation of Eindhoven on the 18th of, uh, of, of, of September. Yeah. It must have been a very hard period for the family, for how things went uh, at, at home. And um, I think it's good to, uh, to remember that. And uh, yeah, what we have yeah. this, you wanted to say. No, 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 no. I just want to say, well, my dad died five years ago, so he was 94. He actually died on his birthday. And um, uh, I think until a late age, he, uh, yeah, he remembered things and he still came, sort of gave information and I asked things and he was still willing to give it. And then, you know, at, at a certain point, it's like, you know, now it stops. Uh, he's not here anymore. Yeah. Anything I wanted to know, I will not get the answer. Because he's not there, so it's uh, yeah, it's uh, this I, is all I have. I heard you also say he was willing to give the information, which is a bit different from he was eager to to preach to the world that uh, freedom is important. That must have also been a bit of struggle for him, whether or not to again and again I, tell I the think, story. I think he, I think he did have some traumatic experience because once we drove through Bastogne with the car. And this was about 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And he started to cry. And I didn't know why. He never talked about it. And uh, I think his worst experience was in uh, during the Battle of the Bulge. And he actually said, you know, uh, driving through Bastogne, um, uh, in those days, like 30, 35 years ago, you didn't have a motorway going yeah. past the town. You actually had to go through it. And uh, I, I think he sort of recollected, you know, what happened in those times, and he was pretty sad about it. Mm 